Good early afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute's Masson Policy Center. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato, and I'm very pleased to welcome you and our uh, panel of discussants today to talk about laws of creation, property rights in the world of ideas. There are no shortage of copyright issues these days. The cell phone unlocking uh, debate has been bouncing around the last few weeks. Yesterday, the Supreme Court decided in Kurt Seng versus John Wiley and Sons that the uh, first sale doctrine is a worldwide doctrine. Uh, and today, later this afternoon, the Register of Copyrights, Maria Palante, will be testifying in the House Judiciary uh, Subcommittee on Courts, the Internet, and Intellectual Property uh, to the effect that it is time to open up copyright law and discuss uh, broad amendments to it in light of the uh, changes that have gone on since the copyright, la copyright law was last amended. I believe in her testimony she cites the, the copyright law as being a good copyright law for 1950. So evidently under the uh, over the next few years, perhaps decades, uh, we'll be talking about copyright quite a good deal and intellectual property generally as well. If you wanted a sophisticated primer on intellectual property from an, a law and economics perspective, I think this is a great book to do it. Uh, and the authors uh, style it in, as a, uh, an answer to the general trend in academia away from support for intellectual property law. I was interested in the book uh, in part because intellectual property is an issue that divides libertarians. There are people on sort of both sides of the fence on intellectual property and copyright. Uh, some believe that uh, intellectual property laws are an, are an invasion on the natural right of people to uh, act uh, freely, speak, say what they want, build what they want, do what they want. On the other side of the divide, of course, are the people who believe strongly uh, in property. And they recognize very well that intellectual property laws can incentivize the kind of productive behavior that we desire in, in a, a society that will be um, uh, both prosperous and free. So we'll touch on some of that today. And we'll do it in the usual format, that is hearing first from our authors, uh, each to speak for about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, then we'll have comments from uh, from Jerry Brito. We'll, we may discuss things among ourselves, but then we'll go to you out in the audience for some back and forth before we retire to the second floor for sandwiches and happy discussion about the issues of the day. So let me start by introducing uh, all our panelists, and then we'll go right to it. Uh, you have to be rather selective and pick through all of the uh, honorifics and uh, achievements of uh, Ambassador Ronald Cass, uh, but I've done so So, in brief. Uh, he's the president of Cass and Associates, uh, chairman of the Center for the Rule of Law, dean emeritus of the Boston University Law School, uh, where he was dean from 1990 to 2004. He was also president of the American Law Deans Association from 1995 to 1997. He's a former vice chairman of the U.S. International Trade Commission, chairman of the Federalist Society Practice Group on Administrative Law, immediate past chairman of the Practice Group on International and National Security Law. He's a life member of the American Law Institute, a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. He has a JD with honors from the University of Chicago Law School just a couple of years ago, and a uh, BA with high distinction from the University of Virginia. No slouch, Ambassador Ronald Cass. Neither is Keith Hilton a slouch. He is the Honorable Paul G. Liakos Professor of Law at Boston University, where he writes and teaches on topics in law and economics. Professor Hilton has published numerous articles on topics in antitrust law, tort law, labor law, the economics of litigation procedure, empirical analysis of law, and many areas of regulation ranging from banking to healthcare. 
In addition to laws of creation, his, his books include Antitrust Law, Economic Theory, and Common Law Evolution, 2003, and Antitrust Law and Economics, 2010. Professor Hilton joined the BU Law faculty in 1995 after teaching for six years and receiving tenure at Northwestern University School of Law. He has a BA magna cum laude from Harvard University, a JD from Harvard Law School, we hold neither of them against him, and a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, our go-to, really, uh, uh, who, we, who I've brought here uh, a number of times uh, to comment uh, is Jerry Brito. Jerry is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and director of its technology policy program. He also serves as adjunct professor of law at George Mason University. His research focuses on technology and internet policy, government transparency and accountability, and the regulatory process. Uh, he's the co-author with Susan Dudley of Regulation of Primer and the editor of a book we recently featured here at our, at our last event on, uh, on copyright, Copyright Unbalanced, From Incentive to Excess. Uh, Jerry is active in so many things, it's hard to list them all, uh, but he hosts a weekly, an excellent weekly podcast called Surprisingly Free. He's a contributor to the excellent Tech Liberation Front blog. I say excellent again because I'm also a contributor. Uh, but, but, but his real creativity is in spinning out websites to do fantastic, interesting things. So look for his work at openregs.com, which makes more available, more easily to the public, uh, information about the regulatory process. Uh, he's the creator of the ITU transparency site, wicketleaks.org, W-C-I-T-leaks.org. Uh, his latest project is called Wonk Meme, W-O-N-K-M-E-M-E, -E, where he captures and, and uh, for you the latest commentary. So you don't have to go surfing all over the web to find it. And the commentary on the commentary, Wonk Meme. Uh, Jerry received his JD from George Mason University School of Law, his BA in political science from Florida International University. So we do have an excellent panel. We'll go in the order that I introduced them with Ambassador Cass, Professor Hilton, and then Professor Brito giving commentary. First, Professor uh, Ambassador Ronald Cass. Well, thank you very much, Jim. It's a delight to be here. I, I appreciate the kind introduction. If you were paying attention, you realize that I've had a number of appointments and Keith is an actual scholar. Um, uh, I, I've done some past scholarly writing, which my wife describes as truly academic. She says, it's the sort of writing that once you put it down, you just can't pick it back up again. Uh, I, I'm going to start with a, a true story, because all, all talks have to start with a true story. I, I was at the beach with my wife last summer, and we were watching. There was a little boy uh, playing on the beach uh, with his grandmother watching over him. And a big wave came and just washed him right out to sea. And, and that was it. He was gone. And the grandmother immediately began yelling, you know, God, how could you do this? I've led such a good life. What are you doing to me? You know, here I've done everything you've asked of me. I've observed every holiday. She went on for some time. I won't repeat the entire histrionics. But finally, the sky clouded over, and a voice came down and said, all right, already. A wave came back in, and there was the little boy sitting on the beach. And the, the grandmother looked at him, looked up at the heavens, and said, he had a hat. <laughs> there are times when we look at things and they seem to be pretty good, uh, things are going all right, uh, but there's always a way to make them a little better, always a way to get a little closer to perfection. We look at the society we live in. Uh, it's a society where we have an extraordinary amount of innovation. The innovative parts of the society, the parts that are linked to intellectual property and IP rights, are growing at about 
faster than the rest of the economy. They contribute about 60 percent of the exports uh, that the uh, United States has. They are driving economic growth in many of the most advanced countries around the world. All of these are innovations that are linked to some form of protected right, whether it's a trade secret or a patent or a copyright or some other form of intellectual property protection. Uh, when I started teaching intellectual property back in the mid-1980s, it wasn't a very uh, popular field. In fact, I started teaching it because at Boston University, the one person who was teaching it stopped teaching it, and they needed someone else uh, to, to fill in. At, at that point, you could have a collection of IP professors in any large phone booth. This is back in the days when they had phone booths as well. Um, when I went to the International Trade Commission, uh, I was very excited because part of their portfolio was dealing with intellectual property, which other people saw as the cost of, of admission to, to being a commissioner there. But it was, it, for me, it was a, a very exciting topic. It was something that involved the driving forces behind industry in America, and, and nobody else seemed excited. Now, and you fast forward 30 years, 25 years, you, ha you have an extraordinary growth in intellectual property law, in people taking intellectual property courses in law school, in people teaching it, in jobs in IP-related industries, in law firms that are big law firms that now have IP departments. And the other change that is striking over the last 25 years is the tenor of the writing about IP, which has turned decidedly among a lot of the leaders of the academy negative on the notion of strengthening or expanding IP rights. Uh, very much the tenor is that we ought to be looking at ways of reducing IP protections. Some of those are written by people who are strong advocates of property rights in other areas. A lot is written by people who are not strong advocates of property rights uh, in any area. And what Keith and I did was we, we were kind of puzzled by this and struck by it and thought we would take a look at the general sweep of intellectual property law, see how it works, see whether it was sensible. And we did this by looking first from a property rights perspective. Uh, at bottom, there are a lot of different things that feed into intellectual property laws. It has roots in a lot of different areas. It has roots in unfair competition and tort and property. Uh, it has roots in the uh, notions of personal autonomy and protection of one's own work. But at bottom, we thought the, the way that was best in terms of analysis of how the law worked, and also true to a lot of its undergirding, was to look at it from a utilitarian framework, essentially a cost-benefit calculus, and to see how the law was functioning and whether its main features were working well or badly. In looking at that, we run through both the basics of property rights, the basics of IP rights, and the way that the cost-benefit calculus works in the various fields, in patent, uh, trademark, trade secret, and copyright, and then look at some of the ways that there are issues on the table in an evolving technological world and a world that's increasingly international. 
by and large, we have promoted in the book a view that is from a dynamic rather than a static perspective. Our view is that if you're looking at property rights from a static perspective, you are missing the most important feature, which is, uh, as uh, Jim alluded to, that you really want this to be something that provides the right incentives over the long run. You want it to provide the right incentives for both creating new ideas and for promoting them in a sensible way, for preserving and promoting and shepherding ideas that will contribute to society. And you want to do it in a way that doesn't unduly lock things up, but that provides rights that give people the incentive to create. In a lot of fields where there is investment in innovation, it's very expensive. Ideas may be cheap to share, but they're expensive to create. If you look at new drugs where companies spend about a billion dollars to come up with and bring to market, uh, go through the regulatory hurdles and bring to market a new drug, it's an incredibly expensive proposition. A lot of different types of software, you have expensive investments in creation. By and large, the uh, conclusion we came to was that the rules we have, the major rules of the intellectual property laws, are working pretty well. We don't say that there are no areas uh, where things could be improved. Obviously, there are stresses and strains. Obviously, there are areas we look at business method patents, software patents, some areas where clearly there are issues that the technology is giving us problems with, and particularly when you put it together with the litigation system we have for resolving intellectual property disputes. We have uh, problems in some areas, but by and large, we seem to have a system that works well, that is helping create an awful lot of innovative components, methods, practices, properties, so that by and large, our take on this is that we don't have a system in need of radical overhaul. We do have areas where Congress has intervened. A lot of intellectual property law is really created, it's really judge created. Uh, Congress or the legislature in other countries has laid down the basic parameters, but a lot of the details have been filled in by the courts and a lot of the major doctrines that have later been taken into uh, the legislated law were created by judges. Uh, by and large, these have worked pretty well. In some areas, people have seen an extension or expansion of property protections, and they've worried that this is excessive. When you look at a lot of the changes technology has brought us, it makes copying things cheaper, easier, and better. It's faster and easier to get quick, cheap, perfect copies of things. When I started in law practice, we had typewriters. We didn't have computers. And we also didn't have copying machines. We had carbon paper, which wasn't great for, for copying. And we were just at the beginning of something called Thermofax. And those of you over age 70 may remember this. Uh, it was a wonderful thing that produced a brown copy with blue ink that you could barely make out what it said for the first few days, after which it was wholly uh, undecipherable. Um, as we have made copying better, faster, cheaper, and able to do it at the push of a button, there are more reasons why we should worry about the durability of the basic property right protections that we have. And this is true more in copyright than in any other field, but it's true as well in, in other fields. So by and large, 
the book runs through, examines these things, look at some areas where the uh, property rights regimes uh, butt up against one another, and those are particular uh, areas of problem. It looks at the uh, increasing difficulty of protecting intellectual property in an international world where there are players who have strong incentives not to respect the intellectual property from others, particularly others based uh, abroad. Uh, and we offer some thoughts as to where uh, intellectual property should go. By and large, we are sanguine about the regime we have and hopeful about the future. We are not standing uh, on the side of the beach yelling, but he had a hat. And with that, let me turn it over to my colleague, Keith Hilton. So a story just popped into my head, too, not nearly as interesting as the story that Ron began with, but uh, I talked to one of my uh, twin daughters uh, there in high school, and uh, they're into all of these devices, you know, the iPods and all this, and I, I'm a technological dinosaur. I, I really don't know much about it. But uh, so forgive me if I make a lot of mistakes when I try to relay this conversation. Uh, but she, I was telling her a little bit about the book project, and she says to me, well, Dad, you know, I have this iPod, and I can store, you know, I don't know, some enormous number, 10,000 songs on this iPod. And all my friends, you know, have this kind of capacity. And she said, but, you know, but guess what? There's no way I'm going to go out and spend that much money on songs. There's no way I'm going to buy 10,000 songs. So clearly, someone must be assuming that if I'm going to use this iPod, I'm going to get a lot of this stuff for free. And I can. I can get it for free if I want to. I can get 10,000 songs for free. Um, so that's where we are today, in, in a sense, with, the, with intellectual property in this area. The, the technological area pumps out devices that kind of assume that a lot of consumers out there, like my twin daughters, will go out if they want to. If they want to get 10,000 songs, they can easily get it. If they, now, I, I, don't, I don't know if they are. I don't know if they're doing this. But they can easily do that, and many of their friends uh, are able to do that because of the capacity of the devices lets them do this pretty easily. So in a, in a practical sense, that's the kind of, of world in which we live. There are some areas uh, overseas where people don't care about intellectual property rights, and the idea of getting stuff for free uh, is um, thought to be quite, quite normal. Um, so that's part of, the, part of the motivation for writing this book, that, uh, that uh, we, are, we, are, we are facing uh, you know, many uh, settings in which people aren't really concerned about intellectual property rights, about respecting them. The other part um, is the framework issue. What kind of policy framework uh, should we take toward the intellectual property laws? And this was, this was one that was a major interest of mine. Uh, and for the most part, our book is an effort to address the policy framework and to, to explain the laws, um, explain the best, what we think is the best policy framework to take to the IP area. And the policy framework, as, as Ron mentioned, is, is largely uh, utilitarian. In fact, it's, I should say, it's completely utilitarian in this book. Uh, and we have a, uh, a specific utilitarian framework that we take in marching through the intellectual property laws. We are thinking about uh, static costs versus dynamic costs or dynamic benefits of protection. So with an, with an intellectual property right, there's a static 
cost that results from uh, giving someone who has the right uh, the power to exclude others and to some extent some degree of monopoly power with respect to that right. And so if you uh, took a basic course in economics, you know that monopolies shrink markets, uh, exclude uh, or at least are unable to serve certain parts of the market because they, re they restrict output and raise price. And there are static costs. Economists often talk about uh, the static costs or deadweight loss that's connected to monopolization. So that's one element of the IP, uh, of the result of having strong IP protection, that you'll have a static cost that result, monopolization cost in a sense, that result from uh, protecting intellectual property rights. But the other side is that there are dynamic benefits, that you incentivize the production of new ideas, you incentivize innovation. So in a sense, thinking about the scope of IP rights is thinking about the balance between these static costs and dynamic benefits or static costs that you're trying to minimize on one hand and other uh, dynamic costs that you're trying to avoid. And so we, what we've done is march through different areas of intellectual property law with this very simple framework and try to explain and make sense of the law that we see in all of these different areas under this very simple framework. And it's a, it's a straightforward idea. It's something that I, we would have thought someone would have done by now. Um, but I, I don't think anyone's made an effort to do, do this. And in fact, if anything, uh, the dominant framework that uh, law students are finding today is one that's very skeptical about IP laws. In fact, I would refer to the dominant framework that's in the academic literature, at least in the, in the law field today, as a zero-sum framework, a zero-sum or rent-seeking framework, a view that says, well, we have IP laws because there are concentrated insiders. There are people uh, in there who have these IP rights, and they are just trying to make sure they gain the system for whatever it's worth and, and uh, take whatever they can out of it in a way that reduces the welfare of the general public. And this seems to be the, the dominant view that uh, students are getting. And in fact, if you, if you, uh, if you uh, look at the economics journals, uh, the most recent issue of the Journal of Economic Policy, which is a, a journal uh, that uh, the uh, uh, academic econ economics profession produces largely to present highly technical work in a very readable way. The most recent issue has a mini symposium on uh, IP, in fact, on, on patent rights. And uh, the symposium is a pretty clear um, uh, depiction of the zero-sum view. In fact, uh, the papers in the symposium, I think there are two or three, are largely from the zero-sum perspective, the, largely from this zero-sum rent-seeking perspective on IP. Uh, and I don't, think there's, I don't think there's a paper in the symposium that uh, takes a different view, the positive-sum view that we're trying to present in this book. So we begin with something like a puzzle. Now, of course, the, the Journal of Economic Perspectives Symposium is largely based on data. And that's how economists work on things. They have their ideas, have a model, go out and si find some data, and see if the, and by, when I say data, I mean numbers that uh, work with the model, or you can test the model against the data. Um, and our approach is different. Uh, in a sense, the law is our data. 
Uh, we don't have a lot. We don't have you know, a lot of empirical analysis. Uh, we do mention some numbers here and there, but largely this is this discussion of the law. And so our approach is something like this. Well, if the zero sum zero sum view is correct, then when we survey the laws, we should find support for that view in the laws. We should look through. We should be able to look through the IP laws and see a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, you can't make sense of, other than as a wealth redistribution, other, other than rent-seeking, other than as an effort by a concentrated interest group to take money from the general public and send it to themselves. So that would be the, what the zero-sum view would predict about IP law. And so if it were correct, you should read through the IP laws and you should scratch your head and say, ah, I can't make sense of these provisions other than as a, a way of redistributing income. And certainly there are, uh, there are there's stuff that's happened in the past that, uh, that uh, you know, you can explain in that sense. There's a famous case, uh, the case of monopolies from 1603, Dar Darcy v. Allen, which uh, if anyone who's gone to law school remembers this when uh, Darcy um, has a monopoly on playing cards, on the making and importation of playing cards in England. And this is under a patent. And the court struck it down and said, well, this doesn't make sense uh, because anyone can go out and make uh, playing cards or buy them or make them or import them. And this monopoly, uh, this monopoly grat granted by a patent enriches Dar Darcy while reducing the welfare of all other consumers in England. So Darcy v. Allen, the kind of, of patent, the, the kind of monopoly or patent-based monopoly that we see in Darcy v. Allen is the kind of result that uh, I think would be rampant throughout IP law. We would see a lot of this stuff in IP law if the zero-sum theory were correct. So we've taken a look through IP law, and in fact, it's just the opposite. We think the evidence is largely that the IP laws make sense, that they could be defended on uh, utilitarian grounds. And, and there's very little evidence in support of the zero-sum view, which is not to say that there is zero evidence. There, uh, certainly, you can find a case here or there where you might say, oh, this doesn't make sense. You, know, you can't make sense of this in terms of utilitarian principles. It has to be understood as a rent-seeking grab. Um, but those are the those those I think are the relatively rare instances, and for the most part, IP law makes sense on a utilitarian basis. And so, what are we talking about? If, if you march through IP laws, through the IP area, one area after another, um, the basic structure of the law follows uh, a straightforward utilitarian approach that weighs weighs static versus dynamic costs and makes an intelligent uh, trade-off between those types of cost. Um, so uh, take, for example, uh, the patent law area. So in the patent law area, uh, one of the issues is, do you award a patent to a very abstract idea, or does it have to be a particular application that gives a useful result? And if you wanted to maximize static costs, if you wanted to maximize the rent-seeking function of patent law, then you would award patents to abstract ideas, and you would be very generous about that, because that would let the people who get those patents make as much money as they can and redistribute uh, rewards to themselves. But in fact, uh, patent law, for the most part, does the opposite. It avoids awarding patents to abstract ideas and abstractions and narrows them to particular applications 
to things that have some specific utility. Out of time? Okay. Uh, what about uh, trademark law? Trademark law shows the same kind of, of balance because un under trademarks you have various categories. You have uh, generic terms. You have descriptive terms, suggestive terms, fanciful or arbitrary terms. And the strength of trademark protection generally gets stronger as you move toward more arbitrary, fanciful, specific terms that have relatively low static, low monopolization power, low ability to, to really exclude a lot of other people from a particular uh, group of consumers. So again, there's another area where the law seems to make sense in terms of trying to uh, make an intelligent trade-off between the static and dynamic costs that are associated with intellectual property, light, uh, pr property rights. Um, we, and, and we've we've gone through several areas of the book and uh, several areas of IP law in the book uh, and examined it under this uh, this framework. Um, IP and antitrust that's one of our, our areas and I guess the basic message that uh, we offer there is that where the IP laws are used as more of a veil or shield uh, for anti-competitive for uh, very uh, bad anti-competitive conduct. Sure, it makes sense to uh, to apply the antitrust laws, but otherwise we're pretty skeptical about uh, the prospects for using the uh, the antitrust laws to correct or uh, give us a better result than what the intellectual property uh, laws give us. Um, and so we're we're somewhat uh, concerned about using antitrust to get into the guts of IP and rework uh, the structure of IP rights. Okay, so I think I'll stop there. I'm almost out of time, so I think I should stop at this stage. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Jim, for uh, inviting me, and uh, thank you to Ronald and Keith for an excellent book. Um, I think I'm here to tell you all, but he had a hat, right? <laughs> Um, I'll echo, first of all, uh, what Jim said about this book. I think it is an excellent primer on intellectual property. Uh, if you want to understand why we have intellectual property law, uh, you want to understand different components of intellectual property law, uh, if you want to understand how intellectual property is justified, this is a fantastic book. And I think it's a book that I will be recommending to folks who are asking me uh, uh, for an introduction into the, the area. And um, I definitely like that it takes a utilitarian uh, perspective. It is not, it sort of, it visits uh, the, sort of some natural rights justifications, some content justifications, but sticks to a utilitarian perspective, which uh, I share um, and uh, that I uh, appreciate, especially this cost benefit um, look. Um, very often folks uh, forget the dynamic incentives uh, that intellectual property uh, creates that, that this book um, puts on display. Um, and I really appreciate that this book acknowledges uh, the differences between the different critics of the intellectual property regimes that we have today. Um, you have those who question property rights and ideas, and sometimes question property rights altogether. Um, and I think that's mostly who this book is, is aimed at. Um, you also have some of those that appreciate property rights uh, but question their design. I think I would find myself uh, in those camps. Um, 
Again, I think it's, it's a previous camp that this book is mostly aimed at. Um, it's addressing uh, to correct the ideas of folks like Lawrence Lessig or uh, even uh, more interestingly, perhaps Richard Stallman. Um, and so maybe they should be some of the ones who should be up here, um, but I'll be happy to, to substitute. Um, and the thing about that is that arguing uh, that the cost-benefit um, in a particular case or in a particular facet uh, of a bill uh, that would strengthen uh, the rights of creators, that having that position often is interpreted as a rejection of intellectual property. And you're often called a communist as a result, or even worse, a lessigite. <laughs> um, now, I'll tell you now some of the things that, uh, about this book that I was left wanting with. One is, uh, I was left wanting for more specifics, right? Um, not about the features of intellectual property law, because as I say, they covered this very, very well. Um, but it's about, perhaps about the particular statutes uh, that make up our, our intellectual property law. Um, you know, this omission is not uh, their fault, because this is not what they set out to do. They set out to uh, explain and justify the intellectual property regime writ large. And again, they do that very well. Um, but what I'm afraid of is that some are, will take this justification of IP law generally as a justification for particular IP, you know, intellectual property laws themselves. Um, and just like there are those in the academy who might want to abolish uh, intellectual property or seriously hobble it, I, I think that there are those who wouldn't mind see it maximized, perhaps into perpetuity. Um, and these folks, I think, are just as dangerous as the folks who would abolish uh, property rights. And they're dangerous um, because of public choice. And while I completely agree uh, with Keith that this is not a zero-sum game, that this is a, a positive-sum game, you, you, um, you said quite well that there's still going to be parts where we don't get the hat back. And, and that's something that should be uh, of concern uh, to us. Um, In the book, on page 14, you guys uh, say, quote, new property rules emerge where the benefits of the security they provide are greater than the costs. And I think it's absolutely right. I think we would all agree with that. And the key there is the word emerge. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, and I, I like the trial and error uh, that that word connotes. And this is why I agree with you um, that once a, 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 a legislature puts a statute into place, uh, having the courts come in and fill in the details and maybe um, push back where the legislatures are missing something is so, is so important. But again, so much of our IP law is set and more importantly reset quite often by statute. Uh, as Jim mentioned today, the Registrar of Copyright is going to be proposing a complete overhaul of copyright. And so when that happens, we need to be uh, very uh, uh, on guard and aware um, uh, and make sure that it doesn't become a zero-sum game. Uh, in the book, again, to quote, um, the authors say, quote, there are some property rules, and this is speaking about property generally, uh, there are some property rules that may never have been socially desirable, but were adopted and persisted because the winners from those rules were stronger than the losers. And uh, while, again, the general uh, theme of, of IP law is that that's not always the case, it can be the case. Um, 
I want to talk about the difference between intellectual property laws and, uh, or intellectual property and other property. Uh, and that's mainly, as they say in the book, uh, because of uh, rivalrousness. Um, at the book's outset, the authors explain the power of ideas to change the world for the better. Uh, and they give examples, such as the discovery of fire or the invention of the wheel, which truly have uh, uh, changed our, our world. Can you imagine uh, that these would be property in perpetuity? That today we would have to be licensing the right to use fire or the wheel? It's, it's ridiculous, of course, right? Um, so it has to be. These property rights have to be limited. Um, and this book, I think, is a celebration of the power of property and ideas to incentivize the creation of ideas that change our world for the, world, for the better. And I concur uh, in that celebration. But I think the other part of the equation that guarantees uh, that the use of property rights in ideas will improve our world is the limits. I think those of us who are uh, enthusiastic of prop uh, for property rights um, and about property rights in physical things can sometimes forget uh, the non-rivalrous nature of ideas and forget that they have to have limits. Um, in the book, uh, I'll quote again, this is a great statement, page 45, you, you say, quote, the serious question in evaluating intellectual property rights and trying to assess the scope and shape of such rights are ones of magnitude. Right? You say that these are empirical questions. And then you say, quote, unfortunately, little empirical evidence exists to shed light on these, is on these issues central to the design of intellectual property rights. Um, you go on to say, quote, while we are unlikely to have empirical evidence showing exactly what contribution a particular feature of US patent law or copyright law makes to the rate and value of innovation, we can see that countries with stronger intellectual property rights tend to grow economically more than those with weak intellectual property rights. And I think that this is sort of central, uh, one of the central claims of your book, uh, which is societies with better and stronger intellectual property laws do better, right? That on balance, IP, works to improve the world. And I have to agree with that, right? In general, yes, it's absolutely the case that countries with stronger intellectual property rights will do better than those with weaker IP rights. And I would say that, that is a good proxy to answer those who would abolish uh, intellectual property, even though, no doubt, there are confounding variables there. Uh, but I think, again, some folks are going to use this general concept, are going to take this general concept to support strengthening in every particular feature of US patent and copyright law. Uh, and I think that because the authors don't conduct a cost-benefit analysis for every feature of our existing uh, IP regime, uh, you're going to find certain particular features are going to be uh, uh, unbalanced. Now, of course, I don't expect that you would do uh, a cost-benefit analysis of every uh, uh, feature of IP law. But I would have liked to have seen some more analysis of the particular features that the critics uh, of IP, uh, that the authors are trying to respond to, often hold up as cause for reform. Um, and I have to commend them when they do do it, as uh, uh, you mentioned. Um, uh, you talk about uh, business method patents um, and how you are skeptical of those. Um, uh, I, I would point out that in that case, you're agreeing uh, with the critics when you do that analysis. And I would wonder, um, or I wish you would have gone into further detail about software patents. You sort of touched on it here today, and I would love to hear more about uh, software patents. Um, so, you, so there are some areas where 
uh, that cost-benefit analysis where uh, the costs outweigh the benefits are discussed. But I would like to have seen some more cases of that, as I'm sure you probably could have found some. Um, I think there's some that are missing. And forgive me, I'm going to focus on copyright, because that's the area uh, that I know the best. In the book you write, page 99, quote, while each aspect of copyright reasonably can be argued to be either too protective of the underlying activity or not protective enough for most categories, for most categories of expressive activity, copyright law seems to provide a reasonable set of rules. And again, one can't argue with such a statement. Um, but it leaves me, it leaves, I think it leaves one with the impression, move along, nothing to see here. Copyright is just fine the way it is. Um, but I want my hat back. <laughs> the DMCA, a digital millennium copyright, was not mentioned in the book at all. Uh, the growing criminalization of copyright infringement is not discussed. The Stop Online Piracy Act, uh, SOPA, which was proposed last year, which uh, was not mentioned in the book at all. The orphan works problem is not discussed. Um, and again, I don't expect you to do this. This is not what you set out to do. But have, you know, having a discussion of those and applying the cost-benefit framework that you've developed to those, I think, would have been uh, very interesting. The last one that I mentioned, the orphan works problem, it's especially troubling to me, and I think it's a symptom of how Congress has changed the features of copyright, in this case formalities, um, where they've gotten some unintended consequences, and where I think we probably need to see some reform, and I think this is one of the reasons that the registrar is proposing reform. Um, formalities, for those who don't know, is when you have to check certain boxes before you acquire uh, the protection of copyright. So for example, you have to register. Uh, before you have copyright protection. You have to renew uh, uh, to get a second term of protection, or you have to display notice uh, uh, on your work to uh, maintain that protection. And those were features of copyright before, uh, and today uh, those have, you know, Congress has removed those. You don't need to do any of those things before you get copyright. Um, the authors sort of justify the absence of formalities um, because, quote, the alternative would be require government officials to parse the uh, degree of originality and creativity of different works, right? Sort of comparing it to patents, uh, where there is a requirement to show novelty or non-obviousness before you get uh, to register um, a, a patent. And so it seems the, the message is you know, no registration uh, is necessary for copyrights. But again, I don't, I don't think that formalities like registration and notice would require anyone to make any determination. Um, the authors also say, quote, by granting an indiscriminate property right that generates a reward only when the work is successful in the market, copyright effectively targets its inducements to the precise qualities that make some works of expression stand out among others. Um, and I would, would ask the question, well, why not target the inducement even further to just those who want the protection, right? If someone doesn't want the protection and they create anyway, well, so much the better. Um, for many, a first mover advantage will be all that they need. I'm not saying that that's a, an excuse for not giving them any protection, uh, but let's let it at least be a choice. Um, and we'll be better off with more, with more content in the public domain. If you don't need to copyright because you have a first mover advantage, allow it to be in the public domain immediately. Why limit the positive spillover effects from these works for even one minute? Uh, and again, if you do have formalities, such as registration, you potentially avoid the orphan works problem. Uh, so yes, we shouldn't have a government official decide if a Rothko is art or not, 
Uh, but the least I think that we can get in exchange for the privilege is that, or at least we can ask in exchange for a protection privilege, is that you, you, you seek uh, that protection. I think the second um, major claim of the book is that because technology has made copying easier, we need greater protection. And again, generally, this makes sense. Uh, and it's difficult to disagree with this concept, right? Because you want to have balance, and you do need to have uh, continuous rebalancing as technology advances. But again, I think this concept can be taken to a, its ultimate conclusion, which would be ridiculous, right? Um, there have to be limits. Uh, yes, we can, if text make, make copying easier, we need greater protection, but not at any cost. Uh, we surely would stop short of capital punishment. So the question is, by how much? Um, and I'm sure that, you know, the authors would probably agree with me. I would have loved to have seen an exploration of whether, and at least on some margins, we've already gone beyond that point. Uh, so take, for example, the Pro-IP Act, uh, which allows the federal government, and the federal government has begun to exercise these powers, to seize the domain name servers and other assets of online intermediaries. Uh, this happens typically before the owners are convicted of any crime. Uh, and in some cases, property is seized without the owners ever even being charged. Uh, you have criminal enforcement where you, even, where you still have uncertain areas uh, of the law. Right? You have a shift from civil infringement to, uh, cr to criminal prosecutions. And that, that's been happening since, uh, uh, the, well, I'll see if I can get it done in one minute. Um, things that were misdemeanors in the 76 Act today are felonies. Uh, penalties that used to be $1,000 today are over $250,000. Max prison sentences have gone from one year to five years. Uh, criminal uh, penalties that never used to extend to non-commercial infringers now do. Tim Lee, uh, in our book, uh, Copyright Unbalanced, says the following. He says, these trends threaten to transform copyright law, making the legal precedents the courts have developed in recent decades practically irrelevant. And we're talking here about the common law uh, 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 precedents that we, that we so like. Um, when an entrepreneur faces a civil lawsuit, the worst that can happen is that the firm will be forced into bankruptcy. In contrast, a criminal case can mean jail time for a firm's executives. The complexity and novelty of online copyright cases means that the law is often unsettled. So executives facing criminal penalties have a strong incentive to accept a plea bargain, even if they believe they have acted lawfully. So you can imagine the entrepreneurs who started YouTube, or the folks who created the iPod, um, knowing that they, you know, that they were in a murky legal area, that the MPAA or the IRA would probably sue them to try to um, shut down uh, their work, they might take that risk anyway if the worst that they would face would be bankruptcy. But facing real jail time, would, you know, would today would we have the YouTube? Today would we have uh, the iPod? Um, so maybe I should stop there. I could go on with some more Parade of Horribles, um, continuing to ask uh, for my hat. Uh, but I'll say again, it's an excellent book. I think I agree with completely with the justification of intellectual property law that it presents. Um, I'm afraid that that justification will be misinterpreted by some uh, and applied to specific instances. Um, and that's not your fault. Um, uh, and, I, and I wish I can see a second book from you where you maybe target those, uh, those areas. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can I start in on that second book?
Well, I, I, I won't uh, go on at, at great length here. I, I do want to uh, certainly agree with every time that Jerry said he agreed with the book, yeah. thought it was right, uh, uh, couldn't disagree with it. You know, I, I thought all of those comments were, were perfect. Um, the, the basic point uh, that, that Jerry makes is that, of course, there are a lot of particular doctrines in particular areas, and we don't go into to all of them. Uh, obviously, it's a, you know, it's a thin book. It's not a, a, a treatise yet. Um, there are certainly a lot of, of doctrines that you can question. There are a lot you can fine-tune. One of the big points we make, however, is that you have to understand uh, most of the doctrines in the intellectual property laws as part of a set. So that, for instance, taking copyright law, if you look at fair use law, that kind of reduces the punch of uh, copyright law. It gives a safety valve for excessive application of copyright law. At the same time, the derivative works uh, branch of copyright law kind of expands around the edges, gives you a little bit greater protection than mere direct word-for-word uh, -word copying or picture-for-picture -picture copying. And the same is true in the patent area. You have uh, doctrines that kind of offset one another. But by and large, we think most of the doctrines work pretty well together. Um, you're right that we don't mention SOAP. I, it actually hadn't been introduced at the time we were writing this. DCMA, DMCA, we actually do uh, hit a glancing blow on, but again, we don't spend a lot of time uh, on it because we're dealing with, with more basic doctrines. I do want to say uh, just uh, two quick words. One is about uh, the non-rivalrous character. Uh, Jerry's certainly right. Uh, intellectual property differs from other because it's uh, non-rivalrous. You, you can have people enjoy it uh, who are uh, enjoying it at the same time. On the other hand, I think much too much has been made of that in the attack on intellectual property. And again, uh, Larry Lessig uh, is perhaps the foremost example of this. The fact that it's non-rivalrous non doesn't mean that it isn't expensive to create. It doesn't mean that you don't need protection of it if you want to give the right incentives for people to create and, and promote it. Uh, it. It does mean that you have to look carefully at the extent to which you're protecting it, how long and how, how uh, broad. Uh, secondly, uh, we do have a general sense that the nature of the different regimes is pretty well suited to what they are doing. So that, for instance, in patent, you have a, a high barrier to getting patent protection. Um, you have a much stronger form of protection for a much shorter time. In copyright, you have a much lower barrier, and you have much shallower protection for a longer period of time. So all these different features kind of work together, and we look uh, at each of the features to see whether it makes sense. Certainly, I would trust the government more discriminating among different utilitarian inventions to say which is original and which is not than I would when they're talking about works of authorship, where I think the uh, incentives for the people making the decision in the government are somewhat more suspect. Uh, last. Jerry mentioned the turn toward criminal enforcement. And this is, is complicated. Certainly, there's a lot to worry about when you have criminal enforcement. There's a lot the government can do in the criminal enforcement process that is uh, dangerous, where it can overreach. And I think there are, there are legitimate fears there. At the same time, in some branches of intellectual property infringement, some types of piracy, 
really are only reached uh, through criminal enforcement because you're dealing with organized crime, you're dealing with uh, intentional and uh, easily hidden uh, types of in infringement. So I think you have to look at e exactly what type of infringement you're talking about by whom. We, we really aren't in a, a posture right now where we have serious worries about uh, the executives of Apple and YouTube going to jail, but it's always worth keeping an eye on areas where the criminal process can overreach. Thanks, and, and I want to thank uh, Jerry, uh, because as, as an ac academic, uh, you're in this business to find out what people think about what you're writing and then respond to that. So uh, he's just giving me more stuff to keep doing to justify my, my job. Um, so so th thanks a lot. I'm, I, these are great comments. Um, and I guess my, uh, the key response is that we're trying to offer a general framework that unifies, makes sense of a lot of different areas of the IP laws. Uh, and that's needed because um, the policy discussions have been dominated by different views, by views such as Stallman's, views such as, as, as Lessig's. Um, and there needs to be a very clear and forceful statement of the kind of policy framework that ought to be uh, taken toward this area. Uh, I guess one, uh, although I'm, I'm grateful for everything Jerry said, I guess one reaction I had was that, uh, gee, you know, if, we, if I tried to do what you're telling me to do, I'd get the hat back, but I'd lose the kid, you know, and uh, I don't want to do that necessarily. Um, it's a different project. Uh, we could talk about statutes, but um, statutes are affected by, as, as Jerry pointed out, interest groups and all of the stuff that... Uh, uh, that the zero-sum view uh, dominates. And in fact, the, the zero-sum view uh, teaches law students that, um, you know, it's all a matter of whose team is winning and, and who can uh, get their, get, uh, 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 you know, the right people up to bat for them uh, and, and, and loses sight of the broader theoretical framework, which we don't want to do. Now, we think there's a role for statutes, and we talk about that in the book. We talk about uh, general theories of uh, utilitarian theories of common law and, and uh, social welfare, uh, and the interplay between statutes and the common law in, in developing uh, the law and in uh, enhancing social welfare. So that's part of the book, and there is a general, and it, it would be fairly easy to take that framework and explore statutes, to stay within the framework that we're in in the book and talk about statutes. And maybe that's the next book, maybe that's the next project. Uh, but for now, uh, we didn't think that was something that we needed to spend a lot of time on um, because th we thought there was a more urgent message that had to be uh, put out there. I think that's, I think that's the shortest response I can, I can give to you, Jerry. Well, thank you all for your presentations. I think the Q&A did help to, to bring texture to the discussion. Uh, we'll we'll go to audience questions and answers, so be ready with yours. Uh, but I'll take the the moderator's prerogative with a with an idea that I uh, I felt hesitant to share because it's so out there. But uh, but heck, Congress is going to hear this afternoon that that uh, copyright law at least should be reopened. As I was reading the book and the uh, the incentive structure, uh, the utilitarian arguments that are that are so strong throughout. I was thinking to myself, why don't we just do incentive structure? 
uh, how about we replace the intellectual property laws with uh, a rule that you own, keep the, keep the current uh, doctrines of uh, copyright and patent in place, but you have intellectual property rights up until the point at which you've been rewarded enough for the creation. So rather than using time as a proxy for reward, uh, let's do something like, I hesitate to use the phrase, but something like rate of return regulation. <laughs> the phrase is freighted with, with uh, a lot of baggage that I don't intend to bring in. But you could do it uh, enterprise-wide so that pharmaceutical manufacturers can argue for longer, uh, longer patent rights, given the fact that they expend a great deal on research and development that doesn't produce anything. Uh, copyright holders could, could get an appropriate return on their investments, uh, but then once they'd been uh, properly compensated, their their work would would go to the public domain, and you might put put time limits on on the on someone's maintenance if they failed to produce uh, if they failed to produce returns for themselves, or you would allow their uh, ownership to expire if they weren't actually pursuing returns, if they were allowing their intellectual property to go to waste. Big weird idea. Uh, anyone on the panel? What do you think of it? <laughs> Adopted by unanimous consent. <laughs> you want to start? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take a first shot at it. Um, when you when you do the analogy to rate of return regulation, I, I know you don't want to bring in the, right the baggage, yeah. um, but I but I don't think you can avoid that. It's very one of the the benefits of having property rights is you don't need the government telling you what it's worth. You don't need, you know, Aquinas telling you uh, how much your labor is worth as opposed to, to your labor as opposed to, to his or, or what the different jobs ought to pay. It's very difficult to get a system right that tries to tell you that you've gotten enough. You've gotten enough out of this oil well. Uh, you've gotten enough out of the, the complex of wells. Uh, we don't want you to make any more money off the rest of the oil. I, I think it's very difficult to do that and to give people the right incentives. So I, I think the, the system we have that does this through the award of property rights and particularly of time-limited and scope-limited property rights is a, a more efficient way of doing it than trying to go the other way. There have been, you know, the, what you're trying to do is to say, you know, can we do better? And a lot of people have offered systems, prize systems, uh, other ways of giving people incentives. And there is often room at the margin for those to increase. You know, if you want to have people investing additionally in a field, there was a, a story on uh, drugs to fight uh, superbugs in, uh, in the paper recently. Uh, if you want to have people do that and you think that the private incentives aren't enough and you want to give additional public incentives, you can always do that. But trying to come up with another system, it's hard to do it without requiring more information in the hands of a central uh, agent to, to make the system work. Yes, and I, I would add, so that, uh, Jim, that the, the proposal that you're offering uh, sounds good if you can have a perfect rate regulation system and you compare this perfect system to the messy IP world that we have now with imperfections, but we won't, we won't get a perfect system. We'll get a, a messy rate regulation system, and rate regulation has lots of problems. It's gamed gamed by the regulated parties all the time. Um, so you, you get errors, costs associated with those errors, and I, I'd be awfully worried about what those would be like if we tried to move to the system. But it's, it's a great idea. Again, it's more, more stuff to think about and 
more papers, more books. <laughs> Always good. <laughs> Feel free to write about it. I'm not going to. <laughs> so uh, I have to echo uh, what my colleagues are saying. Uh, I think what you're getting at, though, with your question um, is that ideally we would give enough of an incentive but no more. And that the system we have now doesn't do that. In many cases, you're probably going to give too much uh, of an incentive um, and that you'd like to see that paired back. And what's going to happen now, that's, uh, uh, when Congress starts to rethink the Copyright Act or when they uh, think any of these bills or any of these laws, is that um, they can't do what you're suggesting, so they're going to have to come as close as possible as they can. And how do they do that? Um, well, they don't quite do rulemaking, but it's still a political process. And, it, and it's going to matter who is um, at bat arguing on each side. Um, and so we still face uh, that problem, and it's imperfect, and, uh, and so it matters, though, who, who's there to. And the, the second thing I would point out is that this already happens today. Um, we have something called compulsory licensing. Uh, today, there is a big battle taking place on Capitol Hill uh, related to the compulsory licensing of digital performance rights, where one party, uh, the labels, the music labels, want uh, a particular standard to be used by the rate setting board, which is essentially the sort of bureaucrats that chooses what rate is set. And uh, the uh, broadcasters want a different set. And, but ultimately, we do have this sort of thing happening. Uh, and this is one, one area we'd like my hat back. I would like to get rid of compulsory licenses. Jerry, I just have to respond. Yeah. I, I can't. Please. So are we in a room called the Hayek room? Is mm -hmm. that right? And you're making this, this argument that um, you should get a return, but it has to be enough, but no more. Enough. That is a pretty dangerous idea. I mean, it sounds good, but it's a pretty darn dangerous idea because you could think about that in the property context. We'll get you a return on your investments in property, but not more than you need to pay back. Well, no, because the reason you make investments in property is because you know something about the market. Uh, getting the reward is something that, continue, that offers you a continuing incentive to make investments. You know things that the regulator doesn't know, that the other people don't know. Uh, and we need to, to give you an incentive to find those things out, to take advantage of that information. And you just can't do that under a system that, that says enough but no more. I mean, that's that's kind of, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's amazing that we're in the Hayek room and you're making that argument because <laughs> I think so if I Hayek think so, were here, so, so, <laughs> so I, I just smack it down I, right away. <laughs> have to, to be precise, the Hayek auditorium is actually just, just oh, over okay. the way. But, uh, right. So I have well, to, to the principles are the same. <laughs> but I, I have to respond, and I wish I had uh, the quote before me, but, but Hayek drew a distinction when it came to intellectual property. Hayek understood that because intellectual property is non-rivalrous, it does present a, a difference. So I totally agree with you. And I'm not suggesting that we do want a system where you do have a judge deciding you got enough. And so I understand the, the system uh, that we have now. But ideally, if Jim was the omniscient god of the world, uh, the ideal system would be for, for, for non-rivalrous goods. Yeah, it would be to have that. <laughs> and Hayek, and, and again, Hayek understood this and, and, ex and expressed as much. Well. I I asked a good question, I think, but let's just spur some. Um, uh, let, let's go to the audience, uh, the one right there. It, it's often obligatory to identify yourself and your affiliation, but I'm a big privacy guy, and I don't require you to. Let your question stand or fall on the merits. Please. My name is Carrie Davra, and I have no problem telling you I did file a comment in the Orphan Works um, window, and my comments got an excellent response. 
I'm probably one of the few people that comes from the other perspective or of part of the spectrum than the pharmaceuticals. I'm a 2D creator. I've been in licensing and design since 1975, and it's provided a lifestyle I enjoy. If you want to work for two weeks and then give me the rest of your money the rest of the year, I'll gladly take it. I think that's an awesome idea, because as an entrepreneur, you step out without any guarantees. My concern with what's being proposed with the Orphan Works is something I'm not sure most people are looking at, is that the tech companies are creating Orphan Works with the galleries that scrub out, with the data bots, the information. So I think while you're looking at it as, I want to apologize, you call yourselves academics. In my world, we call you wonks and lawyers. I think it's important to hold conversations with the 2D world. The, pho the photographers that cover your hearings here, I was a news photographer in my retirement career because of my 2D ownership to my royalties. And I think it's important for you to get to know our community and the cost to us. And the simplest example I give to people is the homeless man on the streets who finds a toss-away Kodak camera with one photo left. And he takes a picture of two people of fame coming out in a lip lock. That picture, 30 years ago, he could have retired off of. He could have made an income, built a business. In the day of the internet now, that picture's gone within seconds. So there's, please, you know, explore the balance. Look for my comment, um, just to show how well it was received. I was asked if you would, If you would um, form sure, a question, please. Um, I, I want you to address my world, the two-dimensional, the writers, the photographers, the people that aren't making the millions that you write about. And let me share with me your expertise in our world and what your recommendations are. Your thoughts? I, 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 I think we're, we're pretty much on the same page, if I, if I understand you, because we're concerned about the the redistribution of rewards from technology from creators to technologists. In fact, we, we talk about that in the book. Sure. Well, we'd love to look at your comment and uh, see how we can look at it. Let's take a question down here. Thank you. I'm Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. And um, lest my question be taken as more concentration on the hat, I want to say that my question, along with, I think, uh, uh, Mr. Brito's comments are not so much about a hat as about whether the boy's fingers and toes are there. <laughs> and the question is, is, is this. I, I gather you would agree with the general uh, accepted view that an indefinite copyright or patent protection would be inappropriate. And if so, my question is, well, is there a tipping point at which the length of these protections becomes clearly excessive and counterproductive or at least no longer serves the purpose the economic purpose you're talking about. From my point of view, I would think that once you become get in the area of multi-generations, you're into that area. Copyright protection for life plus 50 years seems to me at least a little bit excessive, and I certainly wouldn't want to see it extended much beyond that. We actually uh, do ad address in the book in, in copyright the, the question of copyright length and copyright term. 
Um, and we look at a number of different alternatives, you know, having renewable terms, at having you know, very short, very long in perpetuity. And, and it turns out not to be a very simple, straightforward analysis of what provides the right incentives to both create and promote uh, creative works. Uh, but we, we think it is hard to say, it's certainly hard to say that one is perfectly ideal for all types of works. Uh, we think that there are justifications for what we have, and there are certainly justifications in a world where works are more easily copied and pirated and uh, where, the, where the, the need to, to get many different sources of revenue is greater than it used to be uh, internationally. Uh, th there is justification for longer copyright terms in those worlds. But we, we don't have a single answer for all works at all times of what's best, and I don't think there is a single right answer. Uh, we certainly don't think that the case is made that the regime we have now is just crazy, that there's no way to justify it. In fact, we think the, the opposite. So I'll, I'll just point out that uh, I, I agree with what you just said, and what you just said is that um, different works probably uh, ideally would have different lengths and different facets to achieve the right balance, which is exactly what I said and what I think Heath was criticizing me for saying, and, and you just said it, which is ideally we'd want to have uh, perhaps to the creation a different uh, incentive structure, but that's impossible to do, and so we end up with what we end up, which is a political process where you get as best as you can do. Let's go right here. When you're done, just pass the microphone back one row, and we'll pick up the next questioner there. Eyal uh, Moses, uh, no, no affiliation. Uh, I was wondering if you would make some comments about your views regarding software patents. This is one area that, the one area of patents that I'm familiar with, and this, I think, is one area where the zero-sum view is absolutely right. I, I haven't seen any evidence that software patents have done anything to encourage innovation. All they, all, all they do is redistribute wealth and, uh, and put software developers to a lot of trouble in trying to avoid all the, all the patents that are out there. And I find it hard, given that, to, to understand how you can regard current intellectual property law to be, to be working right. And so I, I would like to comment on that. Uh, so that's a you know that's a, a big topic. In fact, the the J Journal of Economic Policy Symposium that I mentioned that's one of the topics. Oh, so I'm sorry. Let me get closer to this microphone. So the Journal of Economic Policy Symposium that I mentioned earlier, uh, that's one of the topics that they they refer to software patents and refer to it in the sense that you're referring to it now. That here's a here's a big waste. Here's a mess. Um, the Bess and, and Moyer book, which is an empirical analysis of patents, pat, patent law, uh, looks at software patents and says, well, the, the cost of litigation swamp the value of the patents themselves, which is not true for other areas. Now, of course, that's an incomplete way to analyze the value of, of patents, but that's a, a sort of uh, raises a flag and raises questions. Uh, it's worrisome if you see the cost of litigation swamp, cost of litigation over these patents 
swamp the value of the patents themselves to the extent they can measure the, that value. I guess the question is, what should we do? What, is it, what, is it, what does that imply about patent law in general? Should we take a different view to software patents? Should we uh, have some legislative intervention, which raises all sorts of issues that Jerry has brought up. Who, what else is going to come along with that legislative intervention? Um, because once you get Congress involved in in uh, writing a statute for this specific area, then you know you're going to get some things that you don't like that'll come along with the statute. Another approach is to let the courts work these problems out over time, uh, because the information about the the relatively low quality or quality of software patents is, is certainly out there, and courts are aware of them. And, and so one perspective is to let these issues be worked out uh, in the common law process as, uh, as it has in other areas of the law. I'll stop there and maybe Ron West. Let me just add a, a few. Certainly, this is a, a difficult area. Uh, I think there are three separate issues here. One is you have a system for protecting software through copyright. We went through an, an elaborate process, tried to figure out which was the better uh, system, and came up with copyright. And we have strong copyright protection for code that has a utilitarian purpose, but that is protected nonetheless uh, under copyright. If you overlay patent on top of that, then you have a question whether you're double protecting or over protecting. Uh, one type of innovation because you have two sorts of protection that are layered on top of each other. Uh, a second problem is whether if you are seeing this as a special area of difficulty, you ought to have heightened requirements for uh, creativity, for non-obviousness, for novelty. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, argument has been that we have lowered requirements there because the patent office has not understood the nature of the innovations, and so it's been handing out patents for things that in other fields wouldn't be patentable. Uh, the last thing is whether we have, because of the short nature of most software's utility, whether we have a situation where things are actually being protected after they're no longer useful in the use for which they were created. They're now used in something else, and that's where the protection comes. Um, all of those are things that are difficult uh, issues. This is an area that cries out for some attention. Uh, I, I agree with Keith that you know we're a long way from knowing what the ideal answer is. I, I do want to add just, just one more thing, though, on the, the question of uh, what happens when we send things to, to Congress. This is an area Jerry uh, raised a couple of times, I think rightly. Um, but I, I think it's important to know that in most areas uh, of IP, we do have people on both sides of the issue. We have both creators and users. We have different groups that represent the creators and users. Uh, as these things have come before Congress, we've had you know, those groups do battle. And the public choice literature, which is very helpful in understanding what can we get from Congress, we have to keep in mind it describes not the basic case, but what the distortions are. I mean, the, the median voter model is still the basic case, and the organized interest groups are the distortions from that. So I think that's important to keep in mind when we think about what we get when we throw this into the legislative arena. Maybe that was overly pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And I do think, though, uh, as Pamela, Pamela Samuelson has shown, 
uh, the tide has been turning. And at one point, um, uh, certainly for the 76 Act, uh, the users were not in the room when the act was being created. It was negotiated. It's interesting that the way the Copyright Acts, and I'm sorry, again, we're sort of focusing on copyright, because that's an area that I know, but the, the Copyright Acts are negotiated by the affected parties uh, and are negotiated uh, in a negotiation that is convened by the Copyright Office. Um, and the parties to that uh, include uh, the different creators, libraries, et cetera, but users have uh, very often been left out. And I think that's, been, that's changing. I think um, perhaps because of the uh, influence of some of the, our friends in the academy who don't uh, appreciate property rights as much as we do, um, this has been gaining uh, attention. And I think that's why SOPA failed, is because I think more uh, regular users are paying attention and making their voice heard for good or ill. We have time for just one or two more questions. We'll take the... Uh uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, Jay Stanley from the ACLU. Um, I just wanted to get your comment in your... Um, utilitarian analysis, the extent to which you address two aspects that are often discussed with intellectual property. And one is the notion that the entire sort of incentive structure has changed in the internet interconnection area. I was just reading this book, um, Makers, I think the title is, by Chris Anderson, who's a former editor of Wired, and now he has a drone company. And in the drone area, we're talking about the private sector drones, like hobbyists and so forth. And there's an enormous amount of, of, of innovation and, and creativity going on. And most of it's being done through online internet forums, where people are contributing for free. Um, there's, no, you know, there's, there's, there's no attempt to monetize most of the ideas that are being exchanged, and it's, it's creating a, a huge, fast-paced innovation. And so some people have said that you know, the internet, from Wikipedia or whatever else, has, has shown that sort of the traditional old school, you have an idea, you monetize it, you get money, and that we need that kind of motivation for creativity to happen is actually not true. So I was curious, number one, how you express that in your utilitarian sort of assessment. And then number two, I work on privacy issues at the ACLU. I worry about the enforcement side. Uh, I know there was some talk about the criminalization of IP law, but you know, you told a, a joke. If I go and tell that joke later tonight, you know, at another speech, am I violating your intellectual property? Or if you got the joke from somebody else, were you violating their intellectual property? And and that seems laughable and silly. Like if you repeat a joke that you heard on Letterman, is that a violation of intellectual property? But the only reason that it seems laughable and silly to us is because the idea of enforcing that kind of intellectual property in verbal re retelling of jokes is absurd to us and has always been, never been re really possible. I would argue that it may be the true that when it comes to the intellectual property of anything made of bits, I think you have to make a distinction between bits and non-bits, like pharmaceuticals are non-bits, but um, uh, anything made out of bits can be transferred so easily on the internet now, just like we can transfer verbal jokes very easily, that the negative consequences of trying to enforce IP laws for people exchanging MP3s of songs or whatever uh, would be so overwhelming that, that, that regardless of you know, whatever philosophical analysis you have of intellectual property and, and property rights or whatever, um, that, that it would overwhelm that. In some ways, it is a resemblance to the drug war. Part of the problem with the drug war is that drug crimes, drug crimes are victimless and Let's silent. Let's make, make that into a question. And, uh, and I, so, um, and don't you think so? <laughs> I, 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 Part of the, the, the drug war is that it, it, it puts the police in a position of trying to ferret out problems, and it's the same way with intellectual property. And so, my question is, what do you think of that? Well, since, since we have since we have a judge in the room, I'm not going to touch the drug issue. Um, but but let me uh, let me try quickly on the other two. Uh, first, your question about monetization. Uh, certainly, we've always had people who would create things because they like creating them. Um, 
while you have to pay some people to come and give a speech, I think uh, Bill Clinton gets, what, uh, 500000 or a million dollars per speech, there are lots of people who stand up and speak uh, without charge. Uh, the only charge is you have to listen to them. So we, we've always had people who will do things creatively without money. But a lot of what we really want, a lot of what's really valuable, a lot of what's really durable, we still need people to invest in. Uh, a lot of, you know, you, you, you won't have movies that you really want to spend a lot of time seeing created in large numbers without a, a significant investment. You won't have certain types of creativity without that. And certainly you get, I, I don't know of any area where you don't get more of it if you pay more. Uh, certainly that has been our experience. So I, I wouldn't do away with the system we have on the theory that there is some, even some significant amount of creativity outside of that system. The second question you have uh, was one dealing with uh, enforcement. And while I, I, I can't say much more than I have about the, the general enforcement issues, I can assure you that all jokes are free goods. Mm -hmm. um, and I can also say that, that I really resent the fact that we have an internet spreading jokes uh, very free. You know, many of us spent years, you know, a lifetime building up a stock of jokes. And now everybody has those jokes. Um, the, the one good thing I can say uh, is that for people of my age, they forget them fast enough so that you can retell, you can tell them the joke they just told you and it's still funny. So, do we, oh, go ahead. Do we have time? Oh, yeah, yeah, we we'll might do one question after this. Go ahead, oh, if you have I, more to say, I, please. I, so I, the analogy uh, between the drug war and the, um, the ease with which uh, digital information is shared. I, I guess I, I'm not uh, convinced that that's a good analogy now because, um, you know, so in, in the drug case, we have willing buyers and sellers, and, you know, they're making, they want to make transactions. The only problem is they're, the transactions are unlawful. Um, whereas in the digital information area, oh, I'm sorry, we have willing buyers and sellers, but the sellers aren't getting the price at all. Now, it's not as if it's going for free because, again, take the case of the technologies that make it easy to get stuff for free off the Internet. You know, what are consumers, why are they paying so much for that technology? What are they buying? They're buying a quick way to get the stuff free off the Internet. They're buying that. That's what they're paying for. So when, they, when they're out bidding up the prices of Apple products, they're bidding them up because of the value of the free content they can get with those products. So yes, they're transactions. It's just that there's someone else picking up. There's someone else who's sitting there getting the, the value out of that transaction. And there's a question about whether the, the reward should go to the creator instead of the conveyor. To me, I think that's a, that's a big distinction between the drug war case. Um, so first, I just want to reassure you that jokes are not copyrightable subject matter. The particular expression of a joke might be, but the idea of a joke is not. But as to the monetization point, um, I agree that um, not everyone, uh, you, if you got rid of copyright today, you would still get people writing songs and making movies and writing poems. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should get rid of copyright. Uh, there are many people who are still going to need that incentive. Um, and especially some of the things that we like the most are going to need that incentive. Um, but as uh, Ronald says, there are people who will know, still do things for free. And so my question is, why do we give them protection? They're not asking for it, 
they're going to do this for free anyway. And this is maybe what I was getting at inelegantly when I was talking about formalities. Right now, if you want to dedicate your work to the public domain, you have to go out of your way to do that. And it, arguably, you really can't completely do that altogether. Why don't we flip that around so that if you want the protection, you should definitely have it, but you have to ask for it? Uh, we've gone long, but maybe we have time for one more question, uh, if there are any. How about up in the, up in the back up there? A gentleman who doesn't ordinarily have to raise his hand and wait. I, th I think the, uh, the use of the term monopoly in this context is uh, unhelpful and misleading. And I'm afraid that's where we started off, and that's how we got into rate regulation. A person who has an intellectual property right, uh, just like a person who has a real property right, uh, has something that may have some market value if the real property is in a particularly fortunate location as things develop. But it's in competition with all other parcels, uh, many other parcels, I should say. Likewise, things that are subject to intellectual property rights. So it's just to call this a monopoly every time there's a property right is to give away the argument and induce, invite discussions about uh, uh, defeating property, uh, intellectual property rights, curbing them, or rate regulating them. Now, it seems to me that the, the issue of the day about competition and intellectual property rights for the last year or so has been the effect of patent aggregation entities, or so-called patent trolls, who acquire large portfolios of patents, bring litigation uh, against uh, typically uh, high-tech products, tel uh, smartphones, and so on, which embody the learning from hundreds, if not thousands, of patents as well. And the problem is created not because of, of anything inherent in that structure, but rather because of the ambiguity in the patents that are granted. And that strikes me, and I don't know, it hasn't been mentioned, maybe it's covered in the book, but that strikes me as the, the most significant competition issue uh, raised by the entire intellectual property regime. Uh, I don't know if the authors agree or think it's not significant or, or what have you. Ron, Keith? Well, I, uh, I agree. Uh, I actually am finishing a paper now on exactly that subject. Um, the, the, the problem, you know, as you say, the, the, the poster child for this is the NTP uh, RIM BlackBerry case where uh, the threat was to give a, uh, an injunctive relief in patent uh, infringement litigation to the maker of a, a small component of the BlackBerry and the injunctive relief was going to be used to shut down BlackBerry service. The patented issue was one that was contested it was in the process of being re-examined by the patent office and revoked. And uh, the, the problem at base is if you don't know the strength, the clarity, uh, the uh, durability uh, of the patent as a, a legal matter, it's hard to make sure that you've got the right right structure. And if you have uh, 250,000, perhaps, components and methods of operation that are potentially patented in an item like the, the smartphone, uh, you've got the, the ability to hold people up uh, extraordinarily in a setting like that. So what, what's happening now is that when there are people who are suing who seem to have incentives that don't align with any sort of a reasonable accommodation, uh, the courts are beginning to be much more skeptical about giving injunctions 
in those cases. I think this is a, a very difficult field where a lot has gone wrong, where things are starting to be worked out in, in a more sensible way, but where there's still work left to do. So um, I, I agree with what you said. In fact, I, I'm the one who's guilty of using the word monopoly. Um, and it's in the book in a few places, but everything you said about the degree to which IP laws give someone a monopoly is also in the book. Um, um, so we're, we're not in disagreement at all about this. The, I used it only as a theoretical construct, as a way of trying to identify what we mean by static costs, and, and that's it. Uh, and that's the whole point of using the term. Um, as far as um, the uh, Patent assertion entities. I suppose that's one another euphemism out there for troll. Uh, you know, I, I, we we don't have this in the book, and it's it's an issue that sort of grew as in importance as we were writing the book. And I, I suppose we um, we don't have uh, we didn't get around to this, and it's it's um, and we should. It's something more to talk. Something new to talk about. Uh, I think I see this as more the I see them more as uh, symptoms of the underlying problems rather than the causes of the problems. And to some extent, I think you're you're saying that too. Uh, trolls are to some extent efficient because we'd rather have an inventor in his garage inventing rather than out there enforcing his IP rights. So it's good if he can sell his IP rights to a troll who will take care of the enforcement part for him. Uh, the only problem arises where, as you said, the rights are imperfect and unclear and uncertain, and trolls um, are able to uh, wreak um, a lot of havoc in the settlement process and in the litigation process. Uh, and uh, yes, those are those are topics that that we we'd like to get into. Future work couldn't get into it here, uh, but we're not in disagreement with, with what you said. Um, I think that software patents um, are. <laughs> distinct from uh, things like maybe a molecule or a chemical formula um, in the following ways. Number one, they are difficult to search, um, but they are easy to infringe, just, which is very different from uh, other patents. And they affect, uh, the, the fact that you can easily infringe it um, affects sort of sequential innovation so that you have this holdup problem. So I think that you could have protection for software via copyright so that the infringement has to be very direct um, and, and, and give the, that protection without having a patent protection. Well, the metaphor of the hat was pretty strong yeah. today, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, congratulations on, on coming up with that, Ron Cass. But uh, don't quit your day job. Don't try to make that, uh, that intellectual property your source of income. Any, any, uh, uh, any forum where Hayek is invoked, I think, is a success here at the Cato Institute. Uh, but it's been made a success by the excellent presentations of our authors, Ron Cass and Keith Hilton, and I think good, good commentary from Jerry Brito. Thanks to all of you for coming, and please join me in thanking our panelists for being here. <laughs>